and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Dolly Chug is a social psychologist who is also a management professor at the New York University Stern School of Business, where she teaches MBA graduate students courses in leadership and management. Dolly's research focuses on what she describes as the psychology of good people. Her work has been published in the leading psychology, economics, and management journals, and cited by many books and authors. She's been named an SPSP Fellow, received the Academy of Management Journal Best Paper Award, been named one of the top 100 most influential people in business ethics by Ethisphere Magazine, and received many other research honors. In today's conversation, we get into this idea of achievement, and Dolly certainly has 
many accolades and achievements in her bio. She's best known for her two books, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias, which came out in 2018, and A More Just Future, which we talk about at length in this conversation, which is all about psychological tools for reckoning with our past and driving social change, which came out last year in 2022. Her work has received rave reviews and praise from Adam Grant, Angela Duckworth, Liz Wiseman, Billie Jean King, and many, many others. It's also been covered on the Today Show, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and many other publications as well. She's got a wonderful TED Talk, which came out in 2018 as well, and it currently has about 5 million views. Prior to becoming an academic, Dolly worked at Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and many other companies as a consultant. Uh, And she talks about her role and how that shaped how she sees the world as a psychologist. She also earned her undergrad degree from Cornell and has an MBA and a PhD from Harvard. And in today's conversation, we talk about Dolly's writing style, how she goes about writing, how she thinks about writing, especially when books are are complete. And we talk about how she has learned and developed and grown her mindset to be more open. And at the core of this conversation, that is really what Dolly cares most about, is to have people understand that none of us are truly good or truly bad, that we all are on this spectrum of good-ish. We're all striving to be good-ish. And if you start looking at yourself and seeing yourself from that lens, all of a sudden you become less defensive and open to learning. And at her core, Dolly is someone who certainly is a teacher, but really wants to just continue learning. And I think you can feel that in her presence with me as I share some of my experiences and some things that have helped me better understand the world. So here is Dolly Chug. Dolly, thanks for coming on the podcast. Where I thought we would start is around writing. You have a newsletter. I have a newsletter. You've written a book. I have written a book. I do not have a TED Talk, but you have a TED Talk. (laughs) Uh, You are you know, a teacher and in class. I am not doing that, but hopefully this podcast is making an impact nonetheless. But I thought we'd start with your process for writing and what that looks like and and how you navigate your thoughts and, and put pen to paper, so to speak, and, and what that looks like for you. Yeah, Brian, thank you for having me. And I, I do believe that we teach in lots of different media, including podcasts. So this is, I believe, your classroom that we're all so lucky to be in. Um, I love writing. I mean, that's that's a space that is really um rejuvenating and clarifying for me. I I think I I was about to say I think I think I think through writing. So I often don't know where I'm going to land. I do outlines, I do storyboards, I put stickies up on my window and like map. I do all that. I like having visual aids of my thought process. But the reason I use sticky notes and whiteboards is because you can change them <laughs> as you go. And I find that as I write, my thinking evolves and grows usually. Um, it also, I'm a big fan of writing through version zero, zeros or um, I don't know what language we use on your podcast, but the, you know, the crappy first draft. Uh, um, you can say uh, shitty. It's fine. You can say shitty. I wasn't sure. I didn't want to assume. <laughs> um, you know, shitty first draft that that uh, folks talk about. Um, and so I am a big fan of dumping thoughts out as 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 
unformed as possible. Um, and I and I literally call that file version zero in my in my um, in my um, organizational system. And so when you dump stuff out like that, you know, I, I reorganized a closet recently. When you dump it all out, it is a mess. And there is so much work to do to like figure out what's there and what's worth keeping and most of it needs to go or you know is stuff you forgot to return or you know it's don't fit into anymore whatever you, there's so much thinking of sorting through it and then what's left you're like ah and this needs a little more of this and this needs a little more of that and this doesn't have shoes that go with it and and so that's the sort of thinking and building part of it and I really love doing that. And for me, uh, I do teach in a classroom. I love that. I'm, I'm good at it and I'm, I'm proud of it and I'm inspired by my students. But I also think I teach on the page. Like for me, that's, um, that's a key classroom for me is the page. And, and a core philosophy I have as a teacher, whether it's in the classroom or on the page, is that I'm learning alongside my students, that I am, I am a teacher learner or maybe a learner teacher. And so when I'm writing and thinking and sorting and decluttering my writing, what I'm really doing is learning. And, and, and that's really fun for me. One of the things I struggled with when I published my book was the finite nature of the book and mm. the fact that I'm probably going to disagree with parts of this <laughs> tomorrow after I hit, after I hit enter and then, right. and then certainly three years, five years, 10 years down the road. You, so much of your work is about constantly learning, like this idea that we're all constantly in that growth mindset or that approach that we should, instead of thinking of yourself as a good person, think of yourself as a good-ish person and a good-ish person, person is going to make mistakes. How do you wrestle with that as a writer in the finite nature of a book with this notion of you're setting yourself up to know that there are going to be stuff, there's going to be stuff in there that you probably disagree with down the road? So well said, and I've never been asked that, Brian. That's a really um, insightful question that, that gets at both the heart of writing and the part of learning um, and the, the sort of dynamicness of it. And until I wrote a book, I didn't know what you just said. I had this like sense that people who wrote books waited till everything was just right. And then they like, you know, took their masterpiece and handed it to the world. Um, and I didn't understand as well as you just articulated that thinking is dynamic. And so that piece I didn't understand, but I also didn't understand that like, it, for me, the book never feels done or good enough in terms of the quality of what, you know, readers are trusting me, you know, they're giving me hours of their life, which I don't take lightly and they're giving me their bandwidth and they're giving me their heart. And, and I wanna give them the best, the best gift possible for that. And, and I never quite feel I've nailed the gift. Um, and so in that way, it also doesn't feel finite to me. It feels like it could keep going. Um, one thing that's helped with me is my editor, Stephanie Hitchcock had been saying for a while, she, I worked with her on both of my books. And after my first book, but before my second book, she started you know, kind of nudging me towards starting a newsletter. Everyone has a newsletter. Um, and I was very much in the, I don't see any point in me adding to everyone's inboxes. 
Um, but she really kept nudging me. And then actually what happened was in May, 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, I suddenly had so much to say. And it was largely in response to the fact that my inbox was blowing up and that a lot of people wanted to engage on topics that you know I and others had been for many years, you know, in my case, 20 years, working on and talking about and trying to get people to pay attention to. And then suddenly everyone arrived at the party and party is a terrible metaphor for this, uh, arrived at the, you know this space of attention and, and wanted my attention. And I felt like I needed to speak to that and, and the pacing that everyone was having. And I didn't have like a forum other than like a Facebook post or whatever, or like a, a tweet. And suddenly I remembered Stephanie saying newsletter, newsletter. And I said, okay, I think, I think June, 2020 will be my first newsletter. And in fact, that's what it was. And what I realized was that was the answer to this feeling of like the book is gone and frozen is to keep the conversation going and really make it one. And so I've not missed a month since June, 2020, I've done a newsletter every month called Dear Good People. And I think of it as it's it's still like oriented topically to the kinds of stuff I write books about, which is how can we be the inclusive people we mean to be and sort of what are tools, what are skills that can help us, not just how can we magically know how to do that because we're quote unquote good people, but how, how can we sort of build the courage and the, the knowledge and the skills. And this newsletter is meant to be kind of funner, zeitgeistier, more in the moment way of doing that. So it's usually whatever I'm obsessing over that month. So, you know, that January that Wordle took over all of our minds, I, I had a thought on what makes Wordle so appealing is exactly what makes anti-racism so hard. Wordle has a beginning, middle and end. It's incredibly satisfying. It's pretty quick. Um, that's exactly the opposite of anti-racism work. It does not have a beginning, middle, end. It's not quick. It's not very satisfying most of the time. And so I wrote a whole newsletter about that. And it helped me clarify what it is that makes anti-racism work hard. It also was like a fun way to think about it and a fun way to write about it and a fun thing to come up with the visuals. And, you know, there was another month where it was about pickleball and there was another month when it was about the series finale of This Is Us. I mean, it's like another month it was about Ted Lasso. It's like kind of whatever I'm obsessing over. And um, it's it's become far more popular than I ever imagined it would because I think a lot of us are looking for a way to engage that feels ongoing, like a conversation. As you bring up anti-racism, I want to just double click on that for a little bit here. So I majored in sociology and minored in African-American studies in college. And there weren't a lot of people that looked like me and sounded yeah. like me in those classrooms. And I then graduated and I went about my profession and sort of left a lot of that behind. And I think for many, and it sounds like for you too, you've been doing this work for a while, but the George Floyd murder was a spark for a lot of people to reignite what their passions are. But I am a white heterosexual male and I have a colleague, my, my co-facilitator, her name's Grace. She is African-American woman. And so we would do some DEI work, so to speak, and facilitate some of that work. I remember saying to her at one point, I said, gosh, this work is so heavy. And like, I there's a reason I'm not a clinical psychologist. Like I don't 
want to work in heavy space all the time. Um, I just want to enjoy my life. And it doesn't mean I don't appreciate heaviness or heavy work. But I looked at her, I was like, I don't know if I have that. And she looked at me, she's like, well, what do you think I have to deal with every single day? And it really like grabbed my attention when she said that. And we have a relationship where we both screw up a lot uh, when it comes to what we say. And there's a lot of grace and that's her name. So it it helps that (laughs) that's her name. And we can just speak honestly. And and she admits some of her biases or some of the things she sees. And I admit some of the biases I see. I give you that background to ask, okay, I am at least willing to go in, right? Uh, Maybe not all the time, but I'm willing to go in and have that dialogue. What I find is that a lot of people that look like me and 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 have a similar background to me, they just don't want to. Um, and and I'm not sure how to uh, engage them. Um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts or advice on. And it's not that they're bad people. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that this stuff's heavy and you know, they just want to live and they just want to go yeah. about their day to day and they don't have to worry about the color of their skin. They might have to worry about their religion or they might have to worry about other elements of who they are. Um, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on on how you address people that may look like me or may have a similar uh, yeah. back- background, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. It's like so wonderful that you have a colleague who is also like a learning partner in this space and where you have different identities and therefore different lived experiences and can teach each other from those spaces. That's incredible. Um, And it's something I often encourage people to look for is who's, who's the kind of a buddy in this who you can speak openly about. Um, But it's not as easy as just saying, well, I just want to find somebody to go running with. Right. I mean, like that's a little more straightforward process to, Um, I think in terms of how do we engage people who don't want to engage, I think, I mean, first is the way change happens, like historically, has never been that everybody got engaged. That's, that's, we we would never have seen any change uh, for the better if we were waiting for that. Um, A critical mass needs to get engaged. And I think So one of the things I think about is not how do we get everyone on board, but how do we get just a few more Brian's like just a few more go a long way because every, every Brian is then influencing. um, I mean, you have a big platform with your podcast, but even people who don't have platforms like yours, you know, who are just not like speaking to an audience, but are just doing their jobs and going home and taking care of their kids. And within that orbit, that's a lot of influence. And so one thing I think about, and um, and I, I borrowed this from my consulting life, which I had, a, before I became an academic, I was in the business world and did like very MBA type things like consulting and banking. And, um, and uh, Susan Anunzio was a, a, a senior consultant I worked with, and she used to tell CEOs when we would go in and we were helping them, it had nothing to do with like DEI work. We were just helping them with like big changes. Like, oh, we're going from a transaction-based business strategy to a relationship-based business strategy. It's a big change in the organization. And they, we have to get everybody on board. And she would say to them, we actually don't have to get everybody on board. Um, and she would lay out what she called the 20-60-20 rule that I've repurposed um, for, for the kind of work I do. 
uh, and in the 2060-20 rule, it's, there's 20% of people who are really open to this thing, and they're like, they're the Bryans of the world and the Graces of the world, and they're like growthy about it, and 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 you can you can squash their enthusiasm, but but if you kind of get out of the way, they'll keep going, and the, we'll call them the open 20. Um, and then there's 20% of people, and by the way, the numbers don't matter. The point is that these are just sort of different profiles. And then there's 20% of people who, on whatever this particular issue is, are very close to the change. They're never getting on board, you know, in that consulting life of mine, they'll be like, transaction-based, you know, strategy is the way to go, never on the relationship. And they're going to they're gonna be very vocal and oppositional about it. Um, they're the ones that are going to captivate most of our attention and bandwidth and, and quite frankly, going to wear us out. And then there's this big group in the middle, let's call it 60%, who's just not deeply invested on this particular issue. They're not thinking too hard about, are we a relationship-based or transaction-based company? Or they're not uh, thinking too hard about, you know, uh, racial reckoning in the United States. It's, it's, it's for whatever reason, not something they're deeply invested in. And this is actually the group that tends to go whichever way the norms go on this issue. And therefore, you can actually have a tremendous amount of influence on this group. But because they're not deeply engaged on the issue, we forget they're there and we don't engage them. We're too busy, you know, fighting it out with the closed 20. And so what I think about with your question is, are there some folks rather than like worrying about everybody? Um, are there some folks maybe in that middle 60 in your life uh, who just, you know, it might just be engaging them, making your learning visible to them or telling them about this interesting conversation you had with Grace or, um, you know, asking their views on something. Like it, it might just be a space to activate them um, that would be so much easier than trying to convert that closed 20 person. And of course the open 20 is a group you can engage with very authentically on this issue because they they want to they want to grow um, and, and like you said, it sounds like you and Grace will make mistakes and help each other find them or understand them, and 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 that's that. Oh, that's a very classic open twenty behavior. Yeah, I I remember giving a talk to a professional sports team in the locker room, and I said a third, a third, a third, a third of the room was sitting up close and pen and paper and like ready to learn. Yeah, a third was in the back, like not interested, maybe on yeah. their phone. And then the middle third was maybe like standing up in the middle and mm -hmm. I could tell they were kind of engaged and you know, I know you've done speaking as well. And so I, I've always said, all right, that front third are, they're my allies. Like I need yeah. to make sure that I'm feeding those people. And some of that third might go to work for me as well. That back third, the, the management for me is really not letting myself get hijacked by or be offended by that back yeah, third. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they can choose to opt into whatever they want to and opt out to whatever right. they want to. Right. And then that middle third is where I'm really like seeing, can I, can I win over that middle? Yes, third? Yes, and, yes. And then if I were to zoom out even, even more, I think we're all in social settings where we have to figure out who we're focused on. And for me, I've found if I focus on that middle third and that front third, 
then maybe some of that other third, I'll meet them at a different time. So like for this pro team, I would sit at lunch and I'd have lunch with some of that back third where I'd sit by their locker and I'd notice a book and I'd say, Hey, tell me about the book that you're reading. Yeah. Or, you know, there, there's so many different ways to meet people where they are and to treat them how they want to be treated. And yeah. I think the mistake I made early in my career was focusing on that back third and letting them hijack my own thoughts and my own feelings. Um, I want to want to get your perspective on something else that I just started thinking about. When I read your bio and you mentioned being a consultant and a banker, you've got PhD, MBA, you've got Harvard, you've got Cornell, you've got big banks that you worked with, you're at NYU. I mean, these are high achieving environments that you've been in. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading your content, I was thinking about, okay, Dolly is this high achiever who focus on ethics and focuses on on what it means to be good and sort of questioning our traditional ideals as far as what it means to be good and challenging mm -hmm. that. And I thought about my childhood and people always ask, I've got two brothers, all three of us are, are pretty decent humans and, you know, good citizens. And I think, you know, like good apples, we'll call us good apples. Mm -hmm. They don't have to hear this and hear me calling them that, but <laughs> that's right. They must never know. <laughs> they must never know. So people often ask my parents like, Hey, what did you do with your boys? Mm -hmm. Um, tell us. And, and I think the mistake a lot of them think is that they focused on achievement and they focused yeah. on like, you know, you have to be great at something. And when I think about it, it, it was really just values and being open and listening to people and and trying to understand people and, um, and, and trying to do the right thing, even though maybe you will sometimes do the wrong thing. And so I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking, okay, Dolly, there's something about her that was driven toward achievement and being great because mm -hmm. the places you've been are about greatness. Like those are places that are high achieving places. Mm -hmm. How do you think about this from a parenting standpoint, like being great at something compared to being a good person? Because I think the mistake we make is thinking that good people are also great at stuff and that great greatness, when someone's great at something, they're also a quote unquote good person. And I know good person is a loaded term that we'll address in this podcast, but from a parenting standpoint, it's something I think about quite a bit with my kids. Like how do I help them try to strive and strive for achievement while yeah. also being a good person? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel my parents did a better job of this than I'm doing, honestly. Like I, I mean, I feel that way about a lot of things about, um, you know, my parents just, you know, I'm trying to do half a good as job as they did. And I, I consider that an extraordinary achievement, but, um, so, so, so the, the, the mantra that I heard growing up very consistently, like pretty much daily was to not worry about the outcome or reward, um, to do the right thing and not worry about the outcome or, re or reward. Try your hardest. Don't worry about the outcome or reward. And the idea there was that, you know, it wasn't the grade. It wasn't the award. It wasn't the um, job. It was, did you give it your all? So I would, you know, the, the, the sort of thought experiment is me coming home with a B, having tried my hardest, versus coming home with an A that I kind of sailed through to get, the B would get more recognition and like positive recognition. And, and, and so I think that was very much lived in the home I grew up in. And I, and at the same time, I mean, I was just, 
I don't know how else to say this. I mean, I sort of won some genetic lotteries. You know, I, I when I try my hardest, I did very well in sports. When I tried my hardest, I did very well in school. Um, you know, and I, I came from a, a home full of love and, and stability and so and financial security. So I so I had like everything in my favor. And so the accomplishments that like show up on my bio, I think are more a product of those things I just listed. Um, but they were never like I never my parents never displayed my trophies in like a public place. I mean, they were they were proud of them, but they weren't like in the room that guests came, you know, saw when they entered our home. To this day, they don't um, they they do, I think, brag about their grandkids, but they they don't really brag about their kids, per se. Um, and they never really have to, to others. And, and that includes when they're in settings where lots of other people are bragging about their kids. So that's just never been their approach. And I think that um, that kind of makes their words seem true, that it's not about the outcome or the reward. It's just about, did, did you give it your best effort? And did you try to do the right thing. And I mean, I'm not saying I always do the right thing, but like, you know, to, to try, have that be your North Star. And with my kids, I mean, the reason I'm sort of, you know, I have two teenagers, I have two teenage daughters in a very complicated world. And um, it's tough. I think they're, they're facing a lot of pressures from outside our home that make them think that the outcomes and rewards do matter more than I think they do. Um, you know, the, the name of the college they go to or the the grade they get. I mean, that these are never things we've come down on them about, but they, they've sort of internalized some pressures in the world around them. And um, I wish that wasn't so. And, and, and I don't know how to counter it other than sound like a broken record and a nag who they roll their eyes at. Yeah, and I think about your daughters and and I have a son and a daughter and social media and, yeah. and the influence of social media. There's a lot of research being done at NYU uh, yeah. around especially social media and its influence on, on teenage girls. And yeah. so uh, as you were talking about earlier, your process for your newsletter, one of the things I started to do was use Twitter as a journal, uh, so yeah. to speak. And I think it's, as I say it out loud, you're saying, yeah, I'm thinking like, yeah, I'm not sure about it. Right. Because I'm, I'm giving out that finite thought on social media that someone's taking, but I really try to just use it as a place to get my ideas out and to think. And then if there's something interesting there, maybe I turn it into a newsletter article. Um, yeah. But, but I'm thinking about our kids and virtue signaling, for example, and how people use social media to come at each other and attack each other and, yeah. and not really listen to each other, especially yeah. on, on platforms like Twitter, um, which is where I spend a lot of time. Um, how do you think about this notion of being a learner? And part of the reason I'm on Twitter is to learn and then yeah. to share. But I find myself having a hard time digesting content. I have definitely unfollowed people who I just can't follow anymore because their views are so different from mine. Yeah. And so I, like navigating social media as an adult 
I have a hard time with, let alone yeah, your as a kid. daughters. But how do you navigate? Because we want to follow people that don't think like us. I think there's tremendous value in that. Yeah. And social media provides that opportunity. And yet I would find myself like getting really upset about what was being said or people attacking and this, that, and the other. Who do we block? Like there are all these decisions that we're making in their universe of social media that is really, there's a lot of polarity in it. And I, I, I struggle with that. Do you have any thoughts on how you navigate social media so that you're yeah. information, but you're not getting hijacked by that information? Yeah. Well, I think like two thoughts come to mind. One, one is what you described as like using it as a journal where you're, you're putting stuff out. I'm, I have just never been able to do that. And, and so I put stuff out, but it's usually pretty well thought out. And, and I, I'm, um, this is going to sound like a tangent, but it's relevant. Um, are you familiar with the building a second brain um, movement or book? No. So this is a guy named Tiago Forte. And he's got this like really big, growing, loyal following. And his, his book came out maybe last year, Building a Second Brain. But he's been at this for a while. And it's basically personal knowledge management, um, which, which is a very like kind of broad umbrella term. the more like granular version of it is like digital note-taking, which completely undersells it. But the idea is like, how do we, in this ridiculous world we're living in with information, you know, out, outpacing our biological brain, you know, by 6am we've already like used our whole day's brain cells. Like there's nothing left Um, that we basically have to build this second digital brain for ourselves. And that's not a trivial thing to do but he has a whole method for it. But but the key, the key that relates to what you were saying about using Twitter as your journal is that he's like, when we were going to school, you had your math notebook and your social studies notebook and your Spanish notebook. It was by, it was sort of input organized, but he's like, what we really need to do is have things be output organized. Like, what are you gonna use it for? Like, you're gonna use that math thing to measure the, the, the length of your counter so you buy the right size cutting board. And you're gonna use you know, that Spanish thing um, because the person who's gonna you know, sell you the cutting board is a Spanish speaking person. And you're gonna, so everything's actually about the kitchen project is what it is. So it should be filed that way. And so his point is that knowledge is for action and we should organize it that way. And we should constantly be, when we take knowledge in, be putting it back out, not necessarily on Twitter, but in your case, it was Twitter, but putting it to use, like go buy the cutting board, go put the tweet out, spread the knowledge. And and so that is a way of thinking about social media that I had not really thought about before. And I've just been like involved, engaging in learning about Tiago's work over the last sort of three to four months. Um, and I think that way of thinking about social media is a really powerful way of thinking about, let me get feedback on my ideas quickly and let me ask the questions. Let me get the, you know, get the different point of view. And I think that makes it feel less like a fight and more like a, a, another classroom where you're the learner. I personally though, I'm too much of an overthinker for it. Like, and so I don't, 
put a lot of stuff out there that I haven't like thought about. I, I haven't adopted a strategy. The newsletter is my way of doing that. That's once a month. And it takes me like multiple days a month to do because I go through m so many drafts of the thing, even though it probably doesn't look like it because you'll find a typo or whatever. But like, believe me, a lot of a lot of time went into it. Um, we just didn't nail it. Um, I, in terms of how do I think about who to block and who to follow, I'm not interested, strategically I'm interested in how to deal with people who degrade the humanity of others. I understand that strategically that's important that I understand, but it doesn't make me better. It doesn't help me learn. So what I try to do is follow people who have a lived experience to share that's different than my own or who are expert in something different than me or who if i were like at a coffee shop and i could eavesdrop on that conversation i would understand the world in a different way and so i try really hard to curate and i'm so proud of how i've curated my twitter who i follow on twitter and now i'm also pretty mad at twitter and sort of considering been considering for months leaving and I, 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 the main reason I don't want to leave is because I feel like I learned so much. I actually feel it's my like number one source of professional development and personal development is Twitter. You mentioned being an overthinker, and you also mentioned in your book that you were afraid to write your last book. That there was like fear involved with actually publishing mm -hmm. it. When you're overthinking or you're fearful, what do you do to actually overcome that fear or overcome that overthinking and still? Mm -hmm. Uh, put your information out in the world, knowing that with putting information out in the world, there will be critiques and then there will yeah. be people that disagree or, or don't like the work that you do, or there'll be a typo in your newsletter and they'll say right. you're, you're lazy or you're whatever, mm -hmm. like right. whatever it might be. How do you handle the fear? Oh, I'm very deadline driven. <laughs> I respond well to deadlines and pressure. So you get it out. So you just create a forcing function and it yes. makes sure that, hey, by this date, it's going out there. It's going out. I mean, you know, if I, I've never missed a newsletter deadline. And by deadline, I mean the deadline I put on myself. Um, and I'm pretty sure if I missed one, no one would notice but me. But as soon as I miss one, I'll, you know, I will. And, and every month I think to myself, I think next month I'm going to take off from the newsletter. I think, I think no one will mind. No one will know. Um, and I'm sure that's true. No one will mind and no one will know, but, but some people would notice, I think if I missed more than one month, I think, you know, we have a, we have a pretty high open rate. So I do, I do put forcing mechanisms on myself. I am, um, I like checking things off my to-do list. If I, if I want to get something done, I just put it on my to-do list and then, and then that, that unsettled feeling I have until it's checked off will, will haunt me. It's interesting about. 11 years ago, I started a newsletter that was Brian's message of the day. And I had no kids yet. I wasn't married. And I would put out just like a little, you know, a little thought of the day, basically could have been a quote it. or research or article or video I was watching. You love it until you're every single day having to yeah. put content. <laughs> it's, it's like too much. It forces so you I, to have a thought every day. But it did. Oh, trust me. I have a thought every day. Uh, but <laughs> I, I changed it to every week. And so okay. I now have it weekly. And to your point, there is this line of like, 
forcing functions that help us produce and help us think and help us evolve with yeah. having rest and a break. And one of the freeing things I've experienced is sometimes not publishing a podcast every week or sometimes not publishing the newsletter every week and giving myself the freedom to choose it rather than it choosing me. That's great. But it's hard because I think I benefit from that discipline or that forcing function. Right. And if, right. I get, if I get too away from it and it becomes a slippery slope, then it's very easy to get off that train. Uh, I want to go into identity here because uh, you talk a lot about social and personal identities uh, in your book. And um, I, I just recently heard a clip from Twitter where there's a basketball analyst, his name's Jay Billis. And Jay mm -hmm. said, you know, he said, if you don't critique people when they give you praise, right? Then why do you critique them when they're giving you criticism That's right. or feedback? And he's like, you don't, when someone gives you praise, you don't sit there and say like, oh, well, they don't really mean it or they're not right or they're wrong. Yeah. He's basically like, we do the same. Why don't we do that with criticism? Like, why don't yeah. you just accept it? Decide if it's useful, decide if it's not useful, filter it. And right. then you can dictate what you want to do with it. But you talk a lot about social and personal identities and how they impact whether we feel threatened and, and when we feel threatened. And in sport, we often talk about, are you looking at an experience as a threat or a challenge? Yeah. Uh, and we're recording this during March Madness. So yeah. if you've got a difficult game, is this a threat experience That's or a right. challenge? And if you That's look at right. it as a challenge, you may go toward it. If you look at it as a threat, you may run away from it. But can you talk about social and personal identities and what you found in, in your work around how that impacts how we see the world? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I just I love all the things you were able to thread together there. That was very cool. Um, and actually, let me just throw in one response to your your point about goals and not being trapped by them, but also being supported by their structures. Um, Katie Milkman has research and I don't remember the term she uses, but in my head, it's something like flex goals where they looked at, um, I think they looked at exercise, like people going to the gym and people who had very rigid goals um, and people who had no goals went to the gym less than people who had a flex goal where there was sort of a range of performance. So we, we sometimes think like, if I don't, if I, I have to go to the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday, do this, and, this, 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 and you lay out the very, I'm gonna do legs and I'm gonna do, and you have it all laid out, um, and and that is as big a trap as the no goal. You need the one that has some, as long as I get to legs at some point this week, kind of goal. And just Katie's book, How We Decide. It's got yes. a lot of a lot of gems in there. She's not been on the podcast, but uh, she's from DC, so we'll give her a shout out. Uh, yeah, I that's why I like weekly. I am not great when it's daily, and I beat myself up if I don't do it, and then yeah. there's shame and we'll talk about shame and guilt perhaps in a little bit too but the forcing function for me of something weekly as opposed to daily gives me the freedom to do it more on my terms and to feel like i'm choosing it um but yeah let's let's go into yeah let's talk about identity, identity. Yeah. yeah absolutely so um identities that we care about like if any identity i individually care about i'm going to try to defend and that's that's human nature and it's 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 not um it's not our it's not us being bad people one of the identities that many of us care about is being a good person however we define it we may we don't all have the same definition of what a good person is but but um people who study what's called moral identity show that most people on a one to seven scale you know it's not a one or two it's like a three or four or five six seven we care somewhat or a lot about feeling like a good person and being seen as a good person 
And so what that means is that when someone says, you know, that joke, that was racist, or, you know, this, the fact that you're only interviewing those candidates is sexist, that for a lot of people, not being racist, not being sexist, uh, is, is one way they define being a good person. And so there's an immediate threat. It's, it doesn't feel like a challenge. It feels like a threat. It feels like an attack. And our, our response in those moments is to defend ourselves. And um, there's one study that sort of, basically the punchline of the study is that when we're trying to, we care about validating our identity more than like a favorite food, a paycheck, time with a dear friend, a favorite sex act. Like we really care about that identity um, or, or whatever it is we, we want validated, being validated. So what I try to offer is a different way of thinking about it that actually, you know, is essentially moving it from a threat response to a challenge response because in a, in a challenge response, you know, in, 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 you know, in the, in the final four, if, if a player comes in with a challenge mindset as opposed to a threat mindset, they're going to be a little looser in their shooting. They're not going to tighten up as much and they'll probably perform better. Or if they, if they miss three threes in a row, they'll be able to hear their, their teammate or their coach say, you know, you, you're not using your legs. Like they'll be able to understand the feedback as opposed to like push against it. Um, and I would say the same is true when someone says to me that joke you told is racist or you're using a word that's racist. Instead of me like tightening up and resisting it, I can hear it in a looser way. And that's what I've called being goodish is essentially having a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. And so um, I, th I think it's very natural. We all toggle between challenge mindset and, and growth mindset in various domains of our lives. But from a learning standpoint, the challenge mindset is a good place to be. It's interesting. I'm thinking about, I use sports for me. I wasn't always great academically, but I understood sports. And so it's just a language that I understood and could yeah. capture. And we're recording this in March. So it's the heart of March madness. Yeah. And just this weekend, Don Staley, who's the head coach of South Carolina women's basketball. And I think they've won back-to-back -back championships. She's got their 35 and Oh, I mean, I'm from Maryland. So we're recording this before the Maryland game. They play yeah. tonight. Hopefully Maryland beats them. No, nothing against Don Staley. But we yeah. have had Brenda Freeze on the podcast, who's Maryland's head women's basketball coach. Um, cool. But I bring this up because over the weekend, they were up, I think, 16 points. And it was the third quarter. Mm -hmm. And they're playing UCLA. And I'm watching it with my family. And UCLA has a player get hurt. And the player goes down, the play continues because South Carolina has the ball yeah. and they're basically playing five on four and Don Staley called a timeout. Oh, wow. And in soccer, in other sports that this happens, someone gets hurt and they kick the ball away and then they restart it. Uh, but in basketball, I don't see that happen hardly ever where the coach will call a timeout when they have a an advantage because what happens usually is the other team goes down they're five on four they hopefully score and then they call it the other team will call yeah, timeout to stop yeah. play um and it had me really wondering about like once again when you're going toward achievement 
And is it easier for Dawn because she's on top of the world and she's not concerned about losing? And then, all right, well, is that privilege? And how do we all use that when maybe we have an advantage and maybe we call timeout? Mm -hmm. um, or is that the game and the game should just be played and the game has a way of figuring itself out? And if you have an advantage, you should be competitive and you should take advantage of it. And I think these are issues that we all struggle with beyond sports. It's like, what yeah. do we do when we have an unfair advantage and there's something we can do about it? And so I'm curious to get your perspective because it's sort of fresh in my head and I'm not even sure what I would do if I was in that situation, but I'm yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if I would have the presence of mind to think of that as a, you know, if I were in Don Saley's shoes in that moment. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny, the vocabulary of sports, like I, um, one thing I tried to do and I've been trying to do in my writing is use more metaphors and in my teaching and my parenting, I've just been trying to use more metaphors. And so when I wrote my second book, I made this really conscious effort to like, whenever I could come up with a good metaphor and, 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 and that's reflected in the book. And then I went to give a talk at ESPN. I, I gave a talk about at ESPN. This is not like for their television audience, it's for their employees. Uh, about my first book and then they invited me back for the second book and I went back for the second book and it was a fireside chat actually and uh and I was I was sitting with a wonderful senior executive there and he was interviewing me and and he's at one point he said do you realize how many sports metaphors you've used in this book like it's almost like it was written for like a sports audience and until he had said that I hadn't really noticed that I just it is such a good sports offers such a good metaphor for life like there's just everything there's struggle and there's challenge and there's 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 people and there's individuals and there i mean it's there's everything um i think in this particular case it is a good metaphor for exactly as you said how do we use you know what i describe as tailwinds you know and and, it, and the advantage that she had in this moment how do we use our tailwinds like the short-sighted view would be and this is like a fixed pie view is that that my tailwind is my tailwind and i probably did something to earn it and uh you know i'm not gonna throw it away yeah compete compete like in sports compete. competitive spirit is so it's so valuable. important i have a tiger so someone would say to her no if your value is competitiveness you it's not your fault that the girl's down it by the way who knows maybe she's faking like we don't even know what's going on with her exactly. we can justify right. it we can easily justify we can it as easily justify it and she you know if if that game had not gone her way, I mean, like, you know, there could be a whole different conversation going on. Um, on the other hand, if you take the long view, uh, a lot of fixed pies, and, and, you know, there's data that supports this, turn out to not be as fixed as we think. And so my guess is she took the long view. Who knows what her relationship is with the opposing coach? It's close. Or... It's close. She addressed it. She said, "I'm." her last name is actually close, but uh, she said, yeah, I'm close with her. Uh, but I would have done that regardless of who was on the other side. Anybody who wants, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, and it's like if if her player had been down, would she want the same courtesy? I mean, I feel like in sports, I do feel like when it comes to injuries, there is a bit of, uh, is courtesy the right word? Like there, 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 I feel like, you know, the, you know, the kneeling as the players, like I feel like there is an assumption that, 
you know, we saw this in the football game a few months ago. And I'm so sorry that I can't remember. Yeah, the, the Buffalo name. Bills. The player. Buffalo Bills game, yeah. right? You know, like it was sort of surprising to me that people were surprised that someone got very seriously hurt. Uh, but but people seemed surprised, and it suddenly seemed like everyone's sort of mindset was okay. The game doesn't matter now. Like we saw humanity in a sport that is yeah, not usually pro humanity. Yeah, right. And so that does seem like, in some ways, it's sort of like, you know, why wouldn't you? Now, what, I think what makes it a little confusing is she doesn't get that timeout back, I assume. And so that, that that's the part that that's, it is fixed by. That timeout's gone, and you might need it. Um, so, yeah, I think that one's really interesting. But it's a great example of, like, headwinds and tailwinds. Well, because sports is zero-sum. There's a winner and a loser. There's a winner and a loser. Well, and... there's zero-sum in the game. Correct. And you, if you listen to a lot of coaches after they lose, they will talk about how this wasn't, we didn't lose, right? Like, okay, right. We, we lost, but this isn't a failure. Like we're proud of what we've done. Exactly. And what we've exactly. What, what habits did we build or reinforce in this game? You know, what breakthroughs did we have and or breakdowns did we have that we can fix? Like there's, it doesn't change the disappointment, but it does change how you play the next game. And perhaps it's a good segue to the home team bias that you studied, um, mm -hmm. which gets into, once again, if, if South Carolina lost by two points, I'm not sure how the boosters would have felt about I Don know. Staley's decision to do yeah. that. And um, there is emotion involved. And we're going to talk about your home team bias. But interestingly enough, I did my thesis in grad school on home team advantage. It's a different, oh. it's a different thing. But when I first started reading, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be curious. Okay, this is something different. My home team advantage study found that um, teams perform better at home than they do on the road. And there's a lot of reasons that lead to that. The thing that I found is actually the messaging that coaches give their athletes is to be more aggressive at home uh, oh. and to be more conservative uh, on the road, more like that threat challenge psychology yeah. that we talked about earlier. So that was something I found from a player's perspective, but your home team bias has much more to do with the crowd and how they see things and how people that are fans yeah. notice. So can you talk about how we can maybe be blind because of our passions or because of our uh, identities and what we feel connected to? Yeah. Yeah. The idea here is that our brains are not, um, it, they're not perfect machines. They, they are, um evolved to do a lot on autopilot and use shortcuts and, and that's that's explains how you know how a basketball player doesn't have to every single time they shoot be like now wait let me think do i should i turn my where should my shoulder i mean right there's all this like automatic mental processing that allows uh an athlete to do what they do in complex competitive situations and that that reality about the brain that it can do a lot on autopilot is beautiful and it's allowed us to function in the world but at the same time it relies on a lot of shortcuts and those shortcuts sometimes get it right and sometimes don't and so one example of the home team bias from the fans perspective is you know the the ref never gets the call right when it's against your team and 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 the truth is that if we showed people the exact same call but they didn't know it was their team playing they might you know on average be more likely to support the ref's call than they are when they know it's their team and so that that sort of very familiar phenomena is 
is sort of, I think, a good example of like in general, the many mental processes that make it hard for us to see perspectives outside of our own, that make it hard for us to see perspectives that are in any way critical of identities we care about, people we care about, communities we care about. And and so so I was interested in, and that's not original research I've done, that's lots of many decades of classic research that's been done by thousands of, uh, publishing thousands of empirical papers. But I think it all kind of adds up to what I called home team bias. It is interesting to think about like, what do we do with that? Because once again, like we've had people on the podcast, I think of Lindsay Kaplan, who co-founded Chief, which is in New York, and, mm-hmm. and they're bringing together women leaders, and they're basically chief executives or chief finance officers or chief operating officers. So they have to be at a chief level, and yeah. it's a women's networking group. And it's interesting because there is a question of like, where do we go from here? White men, for example, uh, whether it's right or wrong might say, well, okay, just because we didn't include people in the past, now should we not, what happens if we are not included going forward? So now you're being racist toward us or sexist toward us or whatever it might be. And it is an interesting question to be asked, which is, okay, does that bias flip on its head and have negative consequences? And what happens if we start to uh, go in a different direction and, and what's, what are we trying to actually accomplish down the road here? What are we actually trying to get to? And it's just something that I've been thinking a little more about to your point. If we know that we get defensive to um, try to defend our people or our identity, if we know that that's a psychological bias that many of us will possess, what's the best path to actually progress? Is it to segregate or to separate? Is it to um, tell those people, hey, like, white man, you're you're bad or you're like, what is the right approach in the long run if we're playing a long, long game here? Yeah. Um, And I I don't know the answer to that. I'm I'm, I'm puzzled. Well, I think one thing that I've become increasingly convinced by, I, I don't know that this was intuitive for me, but I've seen the data that has been convincing is that there's a lot more things that benefit all of us than we realize. So, you know, the classic example of this is on sidewalks. You know, I live in New York City. We walk a lot. We use our sidewalks a lot. And we now have, you know, it's required to have these curb cuts where you don't you don't have the the several inch drop. There's there's a little ramp. And so the original uh, requirement came from the, I, I assume from the ADA, the Disabilities Act that required access um, uh, for let's say a wheelchair, right? That's the original impetus. But think of all the people who benefit from that, um, people with strollers, people with rolling suitcases. Um, we have a lot of people on bikes doing deliveries that need to go on and off sidewalks. Um, there's little kids on these scooters. They, they, they sort of scoot to school on their scooters. Um, there's people shop uh, using like grocery carts to, to pull. There's laundry. People take their laundry to laundromats. And like so many people have benefited from these curb cuts. And that's the classic example that many people offer of ways in which we think, oh, that thing is for people with disabilities, people, very, very specific disability, people in wheelchairs. When in fact, it actually has benefited so many more people, like increasing access is just a good thing. Um, And I think 
the data I've seen has shown a similar phenomena for housing policies and education policies and hiring policies and like lots of places in which the conversation is talking about inequities, historical inequities that sit in the present right now that are trying to be remedied. But what they're kind of missing is the possibility that this could be good for a broader group of people than the group of people who we're talking about in the new story. It makes a lot of sense. And when you started talking about wheelchairs, the last time I was pushing someone in a wheelchair in New York City was with my grandma. Okay. And this is going to come back. So, um, and it's really going to be about shame and, and guilt and those distinctions. Uh, my grandma passed away about four and a half years ago. So I bet this was five and a half, six years ago. And I can remember like pushing her on a wheelchair and she had dementia and it just was like a, a pretty negative experience. Yeah. Um, but uh, I recently, my grandma was a Holocaust survivor from Hungary. Two of her brothers were were murdered. And uh, so she's got this like intense story that she has shared. Uh, they videoed her. They've captured it, which I'm grateful for. A couple of weeks ago, I went to Hungary for the first time oh. and I went with a Jewish group and I'm Jewish yeah. and I wasn't expecting to experience what I experienced and I actually just recorded a podcast about it. That's what you were referring to. Okay. Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote down a lot of my reflections and my thoughts, and then I put it into a podcast and, and made it a podcast and was actually able to put her voice in at the end, which is pretty cool. Uh, yes. <laughs> your reaction. I wasn't expecting it, but I had this emotional experience when I went to Hungary and I walked the streets that she potentially walked or was forced to go through or I was in the countryside and she spent time in a cattle car and I'm looking out the window and I'm thinking like, gosh, she was crammed into a cattle car with her mom. And uh, she tells a lot of stories about that. Um, or I go to the grand synagogue, which is in Budapest and it's gorgeous. And I knew she used to go there and I had this visceral emotional experience and I was crying my way through Budapest. I just, every day, like even joyous things like mm -hmm. seeing Jews and being like, Holy crap, Hitler, you didn't win buddy. Like uh, you <laughs> lost, you lost man. Um, but I would just like cry and it was very emotional. But part of the emotion was also, I think some guilt or shame. I'm not sure which, around like, am I doing enough to co-own her story? And mm -hmm. she's gone and people like her are dying every day and they're going to be gone. And I've always been like, well, I was privileged. I grew up in the US in this wealthy suburb with two parents. You know, she got separated from her parents at 17 years old and came on a boat to New York by herself. <laughs> like we did not live similar lives. <laughs> but then I thought about it. And I'm like, yeah, but she also passed down so many values uh, through our family and her optimism and her gratitude and her her value of family and, and living is passed down to me. But the shame piece is where I wanted to get your thoughts on because there was yeah. shame for me. And it, it to a certain extent that happened with the George Floyd murder is like, I don't think I'm doing enough. Like, I think I can be doing more and I think yeah. I could be making a better impact than what I'm currently doing right now. And so can you talk about shame and guilt as distinctions? Because I think a lot of us yeah. struggle with that. And perhaps what I had done up until that point is just ran away from the shame or ran away from yeah. the guilt. And I, I I said this in my podcast and in, in my reflections, like I want to bring those tears home with me. Like I want to use them. I want to, I want to lean into them, so to speak, because they're important and life doesn't need to just be pleasure and enjoyment all the time. Like 
there should be tears as well. So talk about mm -hmm. shame and guilt and um, what you've found and why it's important to, to talk about that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that about your Sorry, that's, that's probably the longest question you've ever been asked, but no, it's, um, but that was just beautiful. And I want to make sure I listen to your podcast episode. Is it, so that one already out? It comes out uh, by the time we will publish this, oh, it'll be out, it. but it'll be out in two days. So okay. I'll send it to you when it goes. Oh, out. thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so uh, what researchers find the difference between shame and guilt is there are words that we use interchangeably in our everyday lives, but the, when they're studied, they are they mean very specific things. Um, shame is referring to a bad feeling that kind of encompass all of who I am, like I am bad. Guilt refers to a bad feeling about something I did or I didn't do or I said. It's not about all of me, it's about that thing. And what um, emotion researchers find is that shame tends to lead us to be um, less active, um, less proactive, less um, uh, owning of the issue, less, uh, will, less uh, likely to apologize. Whereas guilt tends to lead us to try to remedy the thing, more action, more proactive, um, more likely to apologize. And so there are some exceptions to this like clear demarcation I've just drawn, but that's the general spirit of it. And um, what that means is that we actually shouldn't, guilt is not a bad thing. Like it feels bad, it feels awful, but guilt helps us in a lot of ways. Like if we had no guilt and therefore never fixed the things that weren't we weren't happy with, um, you know, our lives would be worse off. Like we, we're, we're better off, the people around us are better off to live in a world where there is a little bit of guilt so we can kind of get it right the next time. That's good. Um, but shame, shame is tough because it really kind of just weighs us down. It feels horrible and it doesn't actually lead to better things necessarily. And so my first thought on what you just asked is like, Maybe you're experiencing, I don't know if it's shame or guilt, but maybe there's a mixture of the two, but I would lean into the guilt and try to lean away from the shame because it's the shame, that shame is not going to help you. And then I will actually do a quick callback to that first newsletter I ever put out in June, 2020, which was probably my least, like, uh, I think most of my newsletters have a joy factor to them. That one did not in <laughs> June, 2020, but, but it was also the one that, that I think offered a very actionable rule of thumb, which was what I call the 10% more rule. And I won't, I won't walk you through the whole thing, but the gist of it was everybody's trying to do everything all at once right now. And that's not sustainable. We all know you can only sprint for so long. This is a marathon. It's, 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 it's multiple marathons. It's an ultra marathon. Um, and so rather than sprinting, what we need to do is what I call this 10% more. And I elaborate on what it is, what 10% is exactly. But the point is rather than, you know, if you feel there's a bit more you could do uh, to honor your grandmother's um, struggles and, 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 and those of other Holocaust survivors, maybe there's just 10% more you can do. And that episode is a great start or the same thing with the murder of George Floyd, you know, maybe you don't have to, you don't, in fact, you shouldn't throw joy out the window. That is not a sustainable way. When you talk to activists who are in the field living this every day, they don't do it by sacrificing joy. They, in fact, embrace joy because there's that saying about like 
joy is like hope in practice or something like that. Like you have to have it. Um, uh, somebody asked Gloria Steinem what, the question was something like, what was her secret to being able to be uh, for so many decades, sort of the forefront of the fight for um, uh, women's rights. And she said uh, her sense of humor was her, her greatest strength in that regard. And so I would say for you, lean into the guilt, lean away from the shame, think about 10% more, not everything possible that could ever be done and absolutely embrace the joy. That's, that's going to be your, your superpower in this. One of the biggest things that I didn't understand 15 years ago that I think I understand now is that there are multiple truths and mm -hmm. you can hold two things and they can both be true. And, you know, you're making me think about, you talk a lot about, we need to look back at our past and we need to reckon with it. And you acknowledge you're not a historian and that you focus on psychology and, and you're focused on a lot of what we can do in the present. And you have me wondering about, okay, we need to continue to reckon with our past, uh, whether it's our family or, or someone who doesn't look like us or doesn't have the same history. Yeah. And we need to think about how can we have a better future, which is really what yes. your fo the focus of your work is. Um, as we record this, like, what are you optimistic about? What are you joyful about uh, in the future? You talked about it being a complicated time for your daughters. And I think it always is, right? Like, it's always, if we look back at history, it's always complicated. Mm -hmm. Like, we're yeah. always going through something. And I almost want to, like, go back and read every newspaper clip uh, summarizing <laughs> every year and see if there's ever not complicated yeah. that we're going through. I think we always, it's always, life always has beauty and and also um despair to a certain extent uh but what are you optimistic about what are you excited about going forward yeah um i'm excited about the power of the arts to sort of help us all move in directions that are uncomfortable like i think there's just so much great work going on in movies and tv shows and podcasts and fiction and I'm really excited about that. I just got back from South by Southwest um, and that was my first time there. And I was just really struck by, you know, even documentaries, which people don't usually immediately associate with entertainment. I found very entertaining and mesmerizing and engaging. And I didn't even take my usual middle-aged micro nap in the middle that I usually squeeze in when I'm in a dark theater. Um, uh, I just think there's a, so much power in the arts right now. And I think people are embracing the arts, like wanting to consume movies and their favorite shows and binging. And, um, and there's, and there's a lot of interesting creators out there. I think that's a beautiful place for us to close. Dolly, your work is great. I really enjoy it. it I love anything that involves nuance and paradox and polarity. I, I just think that life is filled with them and Oftentimes when we read, especially nonfiction work, it focuses on something that's singular. And I think you do a, a wonderful job of just letting people know that it's complicated and yet let's stay curious, let's stay open-minded and let's continue to learn um, instead of just thinking about what's good and bad. Let's be open to, to changing. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to subscribe to your newsletter, 
uh, follow you on Twitter for now or whatever it's going to be. <laughs> um, where's the best place to direct them for that? Well, thank you, Brian. Um, I My website is dollychug.com and that's D-O-L-L-Y-C-H-U-G-H.com. Um, and there you can sign up for my newsletter. You can also see past issues without signing up. They're all there for free. The whole newsletter is free, whether you subscribe or not. And um, I am on all the social media platforms as of now. Uh, LinkedIn is a good place to find me. Uh, my public profile on Facebook is another one. I'm not putting much up on Twitter, though I am learning a lot on Twitter still. Um, and I'm on Instagram, but I still don't understand it. So I put stuff up with the help of a wonderful assistant, but I often don't know what I'm doing. Um, yeah, and my books are uh, the first one, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. And then my most recent book is um, A More Just Future, and it's about reckoning with our country's complicated past. It's really about our emotional relationship with our country, and I do hope people check them out. Yeah, we didn't even talk about your thoughts on patriotism, which I thought were a critical element of that book and this notion that what does it mean to be a patriot and what does it mean to acknowledge some of our complicated history and, and some of our bad history, right? Like yeah. every every country has bad history, good history. Certainly our country's no different. And I think sometimes, you know, we get lost in that and we don't like I had someone tell me once to be descriptive rather than evaluative. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that's a great way to think about it. And I think about that with your book, like go toward the descriptions and you'll find some good and some bad and a whole lot of neutral. Um, I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Once Dolly and I learn the power of Instagram, I'm sure we'll become experts <laughs> at it. I too have, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Joey. He takes care of our Instagram, but um, yeah, I haven't figured that one out. And we haven't even mentioned TikTok on this conversation, I know. Uh, which I am not on. And, and uh, that'll be I'm interesting. On, but I've never put anything up. It'll be interesting to follow that as well. Dolly, thanks for coming on. Thanks for being you and uh, appreciate you. Thank you, Brian. This was a delight. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What I try to do is follow people who have a lived experience to share that's different than my own, or who are expert in something different than me, or who if I were like at a coffee shop and I could eavesdrop on that conversation, I would understand the world in a different way.